outdoors and take a shower during my time. Okay. Now I need another cup of coffee. Kind of thing, uh, you know, and so now I'm thinking, I'm okay. This is going to set my whole schedule off, and then things aren't going to work the way they ought to, and things, and you know, and I'll go up there finally about you know ten minutes after six. I said, "You need to get out so I can get in there." And she, I'm almost done, you know, like like nothing's going on. And then she gets out of the shower and dries and puts on her robe and everything, and goes back to bed. Yeah, I'm calling you out on that. <laughs> I don't, I don't get it. I'm, I'm ignorant. I'm ignorant. I'm sure there's a good reason for all that sort of thing, but, but I don't get. It. So, so you see that word ignorant? It's really a tame word. It really is. But we've turned it into something else, sort of like the words heathen or pagan. You know, and, and even we as Christians, we will, we will try to insult one another. You know. And, uh, well, that was, that was, you know, I didn't go to church Sunday. And, well, way to be a pagan, you know. Uh, you know and, and we do that, and, and we don't even think about what the word really meant. And originally, the word heathen or pagan, they weren't necessarily just horrible people. They weren't a bunch of Satanists running around. They were people that just did not yet have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what it meant to be a heathen or, or a pagan. But, but now especially in Christendom, like the word ignorant, we've, we've kind of turned it into a weapon of some sort. For the Jews, it was the word Gentile. The, the, the worst insult that, a, that one Jew could give to another Jew is to say, you're behaving like a Gentile. Because the Gentiles, they were damned. They were condemned. There was no hope for them, especially when Jesus was preaching this particular message. So what happens in the example that we have from Israel, from the Old Testament and during Jesus' teaching here, all the way to our time today, is that we are in danger of forming dangerous opinions of other people. Let's pray and let's go to the text. Fathers, we look into your word. We pray that it is your word alone that we hear today. God, you would, by your spirit, speak to our spirits. And Lord, where, uh, where maybe we are unknowingly ignorant of something, God, you would turn on the lights and help us to see what it is that you desperately want. This day that we live in, so that we can be your people, that we can live in accordance with your character you might reflect your image to this world. So God, may your word do its work in us to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us uh, into righteous living. Not the righteousness of our own, but that which comes from what Pray that in his name. Amen. Okay, so there's basically five sermonettes that are packed together in this, this package or this text that we're looking at. And I'm going to start with the first verse. It's John 10, uh, verse 10. And Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's what thieves do, okay? They come to take away. In contrast, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it 
abundantly. Abundantly. I love that word. You know, so I looked up the Greek on that. It's perissos. And, and this was what that word means. It means exceedingly superior and in immeasurable quantity. Okay, so quality and quantity are off the maps here when Jesus talks about life. That's the life that he meant for you and I to live. A life that is basically uncontainable. It's so full. So here's the first thing that we know from this text is that Jesus came to give every single one of us here an uncontainable life. And, and that can be manifested in so many ways, so many ways. And I, I think one of the ways that we often miss is fun. I think Jesus, when he says he wants us to have joy, I don't know how to have joy divorced from fun. So Ray and Caleb are living an uncontainable life today. That's something, you even said it, Sally, that God gave that to them to be able to do this as fathers and son. And, and, and I think as Christians, you know, we're often kind of accused of being killjoys or something. Where, where what we should be doing is promoting joy. That anything that we can do that is fun, that is joyful, that just brings life, laughter, fun, I've said a few times, um, then we should pursue that because that's what Jesus meant for us to have. But then sometimes as Christians we do things like that. Oh, you're going trick-or-treating Tuesday, huh? But are you some kind of heathen? That's killing and destroying. Where I'm thinking, you know, the whole world belongs to Jesus and all of its wholeness within. Let's claim it back. Let's go back and have fun with the things that God meant for us to have fun. We don't have to accept darkness. We just stand against the darkness and bring some light into it because we have been given an uncontainable life. I want to read a passage out of Psalm 16. Here are seven ingredients of an uncontainable life. The psalmist says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. What shakes you up? Okay, what's shaking you up right now? Jesus didn't mean for you to be shook up. It means for you to be steadfast, unshaken. It goes on to say, therefore my heart is glad. That's uncontainable life, a glad heart. My whole being rejoices. Man, that's from the tip of the toes to the top of my head. Just rejoicing in what God has given to us. My flesh, this thing, this body of death, also dwells secure. But somehow this thing that is so, so oh, what's the word I'm looking for? So trained by my sin nature that God even has that in good holy stand. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life as part of abundant life as we now know where to go. We know the direction that we can go. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And that word fullness in the Hebrew is the same as the Greek word that says it's full of quality and full of quantity that we can't even measure. And at your right hand are, ooh, pleasures. Pleasures. Isn't it interesting how we turn pleasure into a sin? And, and, and God says, no, I'm, I created you for my pleasure and to experience pleasure with me. And so there you go, Psalm 16, just talking about how incredibly massive this life is Jesus 
came to give us. Then we go to verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says this twice, so I think he wants us to really catch on to this. So now we know that the means of having this uncontainable life comes from Jesus pouring out his uncontainable life. I want to talk about the trade of an eternity. Jesus came to say, I'm going to take your death, and in place of your death, which I'm going to take upon myself, I'm going to give you that's the life we're supposed to be lived. When Jesus talks about a, an abundant life, he's talking about his very own life. So we got this big passage we got to read through. It's out of Romans chapter 5, and of course it's Paul, so there's a lot of long sentences in it. And he kind of goes back and forth, repeating the same point over and over again, but it, that's how he kind of drives it into our heads. So here's what it says. Therefore, Romans 5, beginning with verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, way to go, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded. There's that, there's that idea again of uncontainable. The, the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There you go, Romans 15. That's Paul's nutshell explanation of the gospel. And it involves Adam and Adam 2.0. Okay, the Bible talks about there's, there's the first Adam, and death and sin came through him. And then there's the second Adam, referring to Jesus Christ, who came to fix what the first Adam messed up. And he brings instead life. and and as much as, and I think we all kind of get the quantity of how sin has impacted this world, I think we kind of understand how, I, this is one thing we're not ignorant of, is how deeply sin has wrecked our own being and our own lives. As much as that is, Paul was making the point that what Jesus Christ came, came to give us is even much more, much more. But in order for us to 
experience that, Jesus is is life. That's the reason for the cross. The whole point. Symbol. Wall. Then that takes us to verse 12 in John chapter 10. And Jesus says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And here's where he's going to start making the Jewish leaders mad. Because he's basically saying, I'm the shepherd, not you. You guys are the hired hands. And along comes a wolf, and you take off. I'm out of here. Why? We really, truly don't care about the sheep. That, think in for a minute. Do we truly, really care about the sheep? So in this passage, what Jesus is teaching us here, the big idea is that the shepherd stands alone. And he runs, but not like the hired hand runs. When he runs, he runs straight towards the danger. He runs straight towards that little lost sheep. You know, Jesus told that parable about the 99 sheep that he leaves behind, right? Just to go find the one that is lost. And the 99 that he leaves behind, they're all like, what? Where are you going? Why'd you leave us behind? Come on, what kind of shepherd are you? You know, and Jesus is like, you guys are fine. You're you're in a safe place. You've got all the grass that you need. But you're bleating. You gotta go get this guy. He's in trouble. That's basically what the parable of the 99 means. You want a picture of a shepherd? Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 17, where Saul was the hired hand hiding in his tent while Goliath was endangering the sheep. And David shows up and he says this, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. Get that? What a shepherd does. Or a bear. Our hand goes, I'm out of here. Shepherd, I'm going to go kill me a bear. Okay. I went after him, I struck him, and I delivered it, the sheep, the lamb, out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That's what a good shepherd does. He takes on lions and bears, tigers if he's in Oz. That's what Jesus did. Jesus took on a dragon. To save this lamb. That's what shepherds are supposed to do. Hired hands, they just take off. And that's what the Jewish leaders were doing. They were leaving Israel and all the lost lambs of Israel to the danger of the wolves and the bears that were coming after them. Then we get to verse 14 of John chapter 10. Jesus repeats this phrase, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. More time. Lay down my life for the sheep. And Jesus talks a lot about knowing here, 
the word that is being used for knowing isn't just about um, fixing the ignorance problem. Oh, okay, I now have head knowledge about this. I have the facts. I have the data. Got it all compiled right here. Uh, he's talking about the kind of knowing that, uh, well, that Adam and Eve had after they were created. And the man knew his wife. We all know what that means, right? A little bit more in head knowledge. That's, that's a level of intimacy that is off the charts. And what Jesus was saying here is, my father and I, we have a level of intimacy that spans eternity. It's beyond time. And, and, and he says that, that love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit that have eternally shared for one another, this dance that, this, that we have had through all of eternity without beginning, without ending, I'm now inviting others to come into it. I want them to have that same level of intimacy with me. I want them to know how deeply loved they are. They're not just sheep that I'm going to shear to make a wool cloak or something out of. These are sheep that I love. These are sheep that I'm going to take care of. These are sheep that I'm going to lay my life down for. That's how much I love these sheep. In Jeremiah chapter 31 to 34, um, we're told this, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord. Because they will know me from the least to the greatest. Who's my neighbor? Jesus asked that question. You say, who is my neighbor? And so he told a story about a non-Jew, a Samaritan. Man, if the Gentiles were bad, the Samaritans were even worse. Right? He goes, that's your neighbor. neighbor. And then notice what he says, that they shall know me from the least to the greatest. You see, we have this estimation thing where we begin to categorize people from the least to the greatest. Now, here's what Israel knew. Not in the sense of intimate knowledge. This is what they knew in their own heads and their own thinking. We are God's chosen people. We are special. We are his favorites. In fact, God only really likes us and not anybody else. That's what the Jews began to think. And so when they read Jeremiah 31, 34, you know, about how everybody's going to know the Lord and no one has to be taught that anymore and things like that, Israel would say, yes, amen. And the Lord will forgive us all our sins. Not those heathens and pagans out there. In Psalm 1-6, it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And Israel would say, yes, amen. The Lord knows us. Oh, but the Gentiles will perish. In 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul quotes uh, out of Numbers 16.5. It says, The Lord's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And Israel said, yes, amen. The Lord knows Israel, for we are his. But the Gentiles will never depart from their iniquity. So why bother? We'll just worry about us. I want to do something that's really interesting. Um, Read through the Bible in its entirety. Genesis all the way through Revelation. Just 
Just do that sometime if you haven't already. If you already have, now do it this way. As you're reading through the entirety of the Bible, see how often God speaks about making his name known to all the nations. But that was the whole purpose of Israel, to be chosen as a nation, was to represent him as a nation to each and every other nation. It is mind-boggling how that is one of the main themes of the entire Bible. God's name being made known all nations, all people groups. Now, it's very clear that in God's calling of Israel, he was choosing them as a nation to go and make disciples of other nations, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and even Samaria and, and even to the uttermost regions of the Gentile world. See that? See, when Jesus told the church to do that, that was nothing new. That was the Old Testament mandate for God's people, the same as God's mandate for the church today. Be a light, dark world. Go and make disciples of all nations. Be his witnesses right where we're at right now and to keep doing it wherever we go, even if God takes us to the furthest corner of this world. But instead of doing that, if you read the Old Testament carefully, the Jews began to privatize the covenants of God for them and them alone. And they began to believe that the reason that God chose them is because they had some super capacity to be obedient to his laws. Well, God didn't entrust the Mosaic law to the Hittites because apparently the Hittites couldn't keep it. But we can. That's why he entrusted it to us. And that's how self-righteousness starts to creep in. And I'm not just here bashing Israel, because Israel is a representation of humankind. I do. But I begin to think if I go off the rails, about God's purposes, what he came to do. And it becomes very easy for us to kind of, you know, puff ourselves up. Look at us, we're Christians. Jesus died for our sins. Loves us. We're his special sheep. We belong to his fold. Kind of too bad about those other ones. You know, the ones that fly that rainbow flag. The ones who gather in a building that looks an awful lot like a church, but they don't call it a church. They call it a tavern. Jews that have rejected their Messiah, that annoying panhandler on the street, just want to get my parking meter set, this person's bothering me, those lazy homeless people. You see how that begins to kind of creep in on us? You see, they thought they knew themselves, but obviously, Lord knew them better than they knew themselves. That's why it came down to tell them, not shepherd. I'm doing that. You're just the hired hands that are running away. Mandate them. When do we see Jesus most angry? Okay, where do we see him off the top picked? Cleansing of the temple, right? And, and do you notice what Jesus says after he's 
driving the animals and the money changers out, flipping tables over. You know, we do when we play Sellers of Catan. <laughs> but he's doing it for another reason. Man, he is angry. And he says, you have turned my father's house, the temple, into a common marketplace and a den of thieves. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. Oh. That takes us down to verse 16, final verse in chapter 10 that we're going to look at today. And then Jesus says this, and oh boy, does this wrinkle Jewish thinking. Okay. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And what's Jesus talking about when he says sheep that are not of this fold, not of the fold of Israel? He's talking about those heathen, pagan Gentiles. And they will listen to my voice. You know, when you go back and look at the whole history, I mean, we've talked about some of them, like the Syrophoenician Canaanite woman who had a, who had a, a daughter demon-possessed, and she came to Jesus and said, even the, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table, Lord. And Jesus is like, wow, look at that faith. That was a Gentile believing harder than any of Jesus' disciples were at that point. And, and we're going to see, as you go through the book of Acts, you know, Cornelius, the centurion, what must I do? Tell me, Peter, how, how, how can I follow the Lord? And man, him and his whole household right away got baptized. No hesitation whatsoever. The Gentiles have always been a whole lot quicker to come to Jesus than his own people were. The way that is. Maybe it's because they are so marinated, so steeped in the brokenness of the world, they have a sense of how much they need. Oh, we're okay because we're God's chosen people. We're not. We're outside. We are outside and desperately want in. Someone open the door for us. Like the people pounding on the ark. God closed the door on. Jesus says, this ark, fell. the door will remain open. Galatians 3.28 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There will be one flock, one shepherd. And we are not to make any distinctions within them. Oh, well, you're of a different fold. No. You're all of one flock, one shepherd. In Galatians 5, 6, it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Romans 1, 16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, Gentile. Romans 3, 29 through 30. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? 
Yes, of the Gentiles also. Because God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And then in Romans 10, Paul wrote this. There is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For if everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Who's supposed to be preaching? I'll do, guys do a great job, okay? But no, this would be every Christian in the house here. Every Christian in the house is supposed to be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are they to hear without someone proclaiming? How are they to proclaim unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. How beautiful are your feet? I would say that if your feet will take you to the most undesirable in our community, tell them about Jesus Christ. You got some good looking feet. Jesus did not come common ground. I'll say that Jesus did not come church. Jesus came for rest. Oh. Endangered by the wolf, endangered by the bear, outside of our wall, where the shepherd is. Come, come with me, sending you, just like I send Israel. Go and make disciples. All, no one's excluded. All means everybody. I will be the first one to confess to you that I have been raised with some prejudices. And those prejudices make it hard for me to take off straight to those people and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. So believe me that when we celebrate today, I'm going to call those down again. Jesus came for out every soul would be Heavenly Father, today we pray that there would be neither heathen or pagan in the eyes of the redeemed soul. For that soul itself was once such an outsider but now has been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's 
be redeemed souls who know best what it means to be outside of the commonwealth of his promises. So it should be we, Lord, who most favor to reach outside, to draw another soul. God, would you move in our hearts? Go forth from this place, the darkest reaches, the outside of us, wherever we go, Lord, give people the opportunity. Give people the experience. Lord, we ask this. Amen. As we prepare ourselves for communion here, we're reminded what communion is all about, that it is remembering Christ's body broken, blood shed. Through that, we have union with God. And if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, go from chapter 10 through chapter 11, one of the things that you see is in the practice of communion, the Corinthian church was not united with one another, um, and that there were divisions there. And Paul corrects them, and he says, some of you are going on with your own meals by yourself. Then he goes on and he says, each should examine yourself. When you come together, you need to make sure here that you would come together to eat, you'd wait for one another, that if anyone's hungry, eat that at home. Again, remember, the shepherd will feed you. But he said, here, when you come together, you look not to yourself, but look to others, because as we look at the body, the blood of Christ, we're reminded of what he did for his body, the church here. And so as we partake in communion today, I'm going to invite you in a moment as we worship here to, to grab the, the bread and the wine and, and to return to your seats. Um, we're, we're reminded of, of the unity in this call to, to bring others into the fold here, um, but that only happens when we focus on Christ. C.S. Lewis famously said that if we want to be united to one another, if we want to be in tune with one another, we don't look at one another and try to tune to that. No, no, no. Instead, we all look to Christ. We all tune our hearts and minds to him. And from that, all in the same tune. We'll all be united. So this is an opportunity for us to look at Christ, to look at his body broken for us, to look at his blood shed for us. And so in the meantime, we're going to do a song today that we haven't done before. And so I would just invite you, please try to follow along and worship. Um, but if you can't get the lyrics, then one of the purposes of the song, one of the lyrics in the song is behold him. Um, and so if you can't follow along in that sense, then would you just do exactly what we're singing about, beholding Christ. Now, would you keep in your mind's eye a picture of Christ's body broken for you, taking out the punishment of sin, a picture of his blood poured out, not just shed unwillingly, but poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And it was through that act that he brought those who too unclean, too far off, brought those into the fold. Would you just, next few minutes, you just reflect on him?
So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to come and grab the elements, and would you please return to your seat? So Jesus, we just come before you with hands focused on you. We ask that you give us a clear picture of, of just the, the suffering you endured. Take your punishment. We do this in remembrance of you. We ask that you would give us a clear picture of your blood poured out. Make us clean. Write us know. We ask that you give us a clear picture of that. So Jesus, we just come before you. Worship dreams. In your name that we pray. Would you please come forward? There are two stations in the front, one in the back. You can grab the communion and return to your seats. He who was before there was time walked across the pages of time. He who made every living being behold him. He who heard humanity's cry left his throne to wake as a child. He became like the least of us. Behold him. So it's now that we recognize we are saved Christ alone. It's nothing that we've done. Not our keeping of the law. It's not our righteousness. It's nothing that we could have earned. It's because his body broken for us. And it was the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed he took the bread. When he had given thanks, broke it. And he said, this, my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Take it together. And while Christ took our punishment, body broken, he also poured out blood, washes clean, forgiveness sins. Pause, we reflect. Again, regardless of our, our sin, our failure, our guilt, because of Christ, we're made new. Because in the same way, it was after the supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. 
Do this whenever you drink of it, remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's drink. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that whether we have known you for five minutes or 50 years, that we all get to come to this same place of sitting across the table. You know, we, are, we are recipients of salvation, not earners of it in any way. We reflect on the work that you did to save us. That we were the we were the sheep out in danger, wandered away. That you chased us down, brought us home. And now, God, as we worship together, as we seek to serve you in this fold, would you help us to, to love one another? Help us that they would know we are your followers for the way that we love one another. That as you bring the lost sheep into the fold, would you help us see how it is that we can love those that you've brought in? Would you help us be your servants in recognizing your desire to bring those lost sheep into the fold? Repent the many ways in which we might put a, a works-based approach on, on salvation, a, a self-righteousness on it. God, we just pause and recognize nothing but your blood. It's nothing but your blood that has brought us home. So, our only response then, we praise you. Jesus, thank you. We ask that you would solidify this in hearts and minds. Jesus, we love you. We pray. Amen. Now, would you please, would you stand, and would you worship in response to Jesus' done.
I hope we do behold Jesus. And I hope as we behold Jesus, we understand that he didn't just come for the saints on Sunday. He did. But he came for any soul that would call on his name in the coming week. As you go forth from this place, go with these words, speaking the lost lamb. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, in no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he sell our peace. Go forth in that name. Go forth in that hope. Have a blessed and wonderful week. Thanks for joining us today.